Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Take your Bibles and uh, open up to the book of Genesis, chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And uh, it's the first book of the Bible. So open up there, look for big, the big number 9. If you're online with us, get a Bible. I want you to have your eyes on Scripture as well. Uh, because at the end of the day... Uh, we stand on the authority of God's word. And so if I say something or you hear something that is not in God's word, it's our responsibility to call that out. Uh, and I want you to, I, I like to remind you as our church family that that is a responsibility you carry. It is a responsibility you have to hear what is said on Sunday morning or when you are listening to something throughout the week, and ask the question, um, where does it say that in the Bible? And if it doesn't say that in the Bible, it is your responsibility to ask good questions and to approach a person who would say something that is not in God's Word and ask them why they seem to portray it as God's Word. Um, There are many churches in our country today who do not operate with that kind of accountability and i'm telling you i want that kind of accountability and as we look towards the end of this year and celebrating 100 years of god's faithfulness uh, for for the evangelical free church of canton um, the only way that we can begin a trajectory for the next hundred years if the lord tarries is by remaining rooted in the word of god regardless of what culture's saying regardless of what other people are saying Uh, It doesn't matter unless we are rooted in God's word. And we have to we have to hold fast to that to hold, as Hebrews would say, hold fast the confession of your faith um, that this this is rooted in God's word. So uh, just a side note to encourage you to hold myself, the other leaders accountable to that, um, that we might uh, set a trajectory that is focused on what God has for us, not what we would have for us. Uh, we're continuing this series through the book of Genesis, and honestly, I am so encouraged uh, by the feedback that you're giving, the amount of people who have said they have never walked through the book of Genesis um, is, is startling to me, and I love that we're going through this together. And we have been, uh, we've walked from creation all the way through to uh, last week looking at the flood uh, and Noah and his family being spared by the grace of God. And today we're shifting to really a look at the post-flood world and what's happening and what's taking place. Now, if we were to sit down uh, with our community here or in the culture around us or uh, the, the world around us, and we were to uh, have a conversation around the cause 
of evil and or the solutions to bring about peace or lasting change, we would hear undoubtedly a lot of different perspectives. For many of you, I anticipate just because of who we are, that many of you would respond if posed to that question that the cause of the evil around us is simply the sin of man and the choices that we make to walk in opposition to God's word. But if you have a conversation with the secular world and you are engaging with people who have no concept of a biblical worldview, they have may not even have a concept of God we start to hear responses that really echo much of what we heard when we were seeing Adam and Eve's response to their own sin in Genesis chapter 3. It is their fault that we're in this position. It is because of what they have done or are doing that we're in this position. And we're constantly, as a culture, looking For someone that we can place the blame on. And if you get nothing else out of this today, I want you to grab hold of this statement. And that is simply the truth that the greatest enemy to righteousness is ourselves. The greatest enemy to that which is right and true and holy and just The greatest enemy to God's sovereign plan is ourselves. Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 7 and Luke chapter 6, he challenges this idea that you should focus in on the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye. Now, some people take that to another extreme, and so then we jump to this whole idea that we're never to exercise judgment or discernment when looking in another person's life. And that is a wholly unbiblical idea. When Scripture speaks about you should not judge, it's specifically referring to you don't have the power to condemn someone to hell, nor to invite them into eternity. That is something only God possesses. And yet scripture makes it very clear that we're to be discerning people, that we're to know where someone is really at by how they are producing fruit in their life and to call people into accountability. But at the end of the day, I will say to you the same thing I say to my children often when they come to me and they are uh, distraught because their sibling has undoubtedly caused them to respond a way that they knew they shouldn't have responded. And our simple response is the same as it is for all of us. You are responsible for one person in your life. Who is that person? Me. Everyone say me. Me. Okay. You take that finger and you turn it around and you point right back at yourself. And so at the end of the day to cling to this and you're going to understand why this is the main idea drawn from this text Uh, As we read it, but the greatest enemy that you face when it comes to walking a biblically godly life, walking in obedience to Christ, the number one enemy you face is yourself. It's yourself.
So as we consider that truth, before we step any further, let's just pray. Uh, because this is challenging. Anytime we seek to bring conviction and actually evaluate ourselves, um, our enemy, the deceiver, <laughs> seeks to put any distraction he can in the way of you seeing what's really at the root of that. So let's commit this to prayer and trust the Lord. Father, thank you for your word and the hope that it gives us. Lord, call us into accountability in the areas of our life where we have been most prone to allow sin to run rampant, where we make choices to walk in disobedience to your word. Open our eyes to see this and give us the boldness and motivation by the power of your spirit to overcome that. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 9, I'm going to start in verse 18. Now understand, kind of setting the scene here, uh, Noah and his family have successfully walked out onto dry land, and this begins the description of what is taking place post-flood. Uh, the world, they've been given the command to go forth and populate the earth. The animals have been released. Uh, now comes what is next in the narrative of creation and Mankind. Verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. That's going to be important later on. Verse 19, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk. And lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backwards, covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. <clears throat> Everyone say, Whoa. I don't know about you, but when I read this account, I go, are you kidding me? Here we are coming off of the most wicked portion of history up to this point, where previously it said that every intention of man's heart was only evil continually. And Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah has lived this. He's experienced this. He has seen God spare his whole family in the most profound, unexpected way we could imagine. Spending between 50 and 120 years building a, a boat in the midst of a place where there would have been no concept of this, most likely. And he was faithful. He walked in obedience to the Lord. And now they get off the ark. And within a manner of time, Noah falls prey to his sinful flesh. Now, it's important to note a couple of things when we read accounts of Scripture like this. Number one, 
we don't often stop to consider that Scripture is not happening at a rapid-fire pace. We make the mistake when we read the Bible as if this is all happening within the manner of a week. And yet, there's years that take place before this event unfolds. How do we know that? Well, the fact that Noah became... In the process of that, verse 20, he began to be a man of the soil and planted a vineyard. I don't know if you've ever looked into how long it takes a vineyard to grow, but it doesn't grow overnight. Now, why is this important? Because at the end of the day, we cannot somehow excuse Noah's behavior as if he didn't know better. Noah would have been keenly aware and yet still falls back into the patterns of his flesh. And when we think about that, here, here's the truth that comes out of that. There is never a time, as long as we are in our flesh, that we are not in danger of walking in disobedience. There is never a point in our lives, regardless of how far we think we've come, that we are not actively in danger of falling back into old habits or patterns. It's one of the most profound reasons why we really need authentic community around us and why the church should gather to remind each other of these things. Because we are always in danger of falling back into these patterns. Now, the other interesting thing that happens here is notice what takes place. Noah clearly has sinned and fallen into a drunken stupor and is lying in his tent naked. But then there's this whole aspect that comes into play with his son, Ham, who comes in and sees his father naked in the tent. But the significance here becomes when we see that Ham, in how he responds, goes out and tells his brothers. Now, we're left to kind of speculate how this all played out. But I grew up in a home of three boys, and I can kind of imagine how this played out. That Ham goes in, and in his flesh, he sees his father lying there in the state, and he thinks it's kind of funny. Look at this guy. And so what does he do? He doesn't cover his father. He doesn't assist his father. Instead, he goes out, i got to tell the boys about this. And so he goes and he shares this with his brothers, and his brother's response says a lot about the contrast between Ham's motivation and the motivation of his brothers. His brothers, in honor and respect of their father, not denying anywhere in here that their father had sinned, but they back slowly into the tent, And they cover their father up out of respect for who he is. Now, one of the one of the commentaries that I've been reading alongside of this, as I've studied, made a really, really powerful observation as it correlated this act to the very covering that God did to Adam and Eve after they sinned. That is, in the midst of their sin and recognizing their nakedness, God clothed Adam and Eve And it was even symbolic in some manner of the future covering over sins that Jesus would bring. 
Now, in the midst of that, Noah awakes and hears this, and he pronounces a curse over Canaan. Now, what's really unique about this is if you jump over briefly to chapter 10, verse 6, you see the order of the sons of Ham. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Now, naturally speaking, if we only read chapter 9, then we would assume that Canaan would be the firstborn son of Ham and therefore the one destined to inherit and carry on the lineage of Ham. And so Noah pronounced this judgment on Canaan because he was firstborn son. However, there is a prophetic sense in which Noah speaks here, identifying that Somehow or another, Noah had insight that Canaan was carrying out the same type of seemingly sinful behavior that his father was carrying out. And in fact, as you read the rest of Scripture, you find out that he was exactly right. Canaan did indeed end up living subservient to Israel as a nation. And there's ongoing tensions. This is where this becomes super significant when we pan back and see the whole of what God has written in his word, that these details matter. We are always in danger of walking in disobedience. Now, there's a lot in this narrative that we don't know. There's a lot we could sit and speculate on. And so we have to step back and ask, why would this be here for us to understand? Why is it so crucial for us to see this really, really troubling state of things after the flood? Reality is, it reveals two things. One, man's propensity to turn back to his sinful flesh, regardless of how God has moved. And two, the unfading grace and mercy of God to be faithful to His promises. Have you ever notice that in Genesis 3.15, when God says that there will be a seed of the woman, an offspring of the woman, that will crush the head of the serpent, that if God had annihilated every single human being on the planet, including Noah and his family, that promise would never have been able to be fulfilled? That Noah, being a descendant of Adam, a literally an offspring of the woman, God, in sparing Noah and his family, not only shows his grace to Noah, who falls back into his sin, but also proves that God, regardless of what takes place, will always remain faithful to what he has promised. God will make a way. There's an emphasis here when we can go to the New Testament and understand. First John gives this warning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This focused around obedience. In the same way, James 1 correlates us back to our responsibility as well, where it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot 
cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, lured and enticed there, if you mark in your Bible, underline those words. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And I go back once more to Genesis chapter 3, when the temptation of the serpent happens. The serpent is only able to deceive. We make the choice. Bringing us back to this core truth, the greatest enemy to righteousness is ourselves. Now, chapter 10 details the genealogies of Noah's sons, their direct, their dispersion across the land and the territories they settle in. Um, These are crucial. These genealogies are crucial for you to read as we gain the ability to trace lineage back in order to see fully the promises of God. Don't blow by these passages when you're reading these texts. They're super important. And as we could probably predict, in the midst of all of this, mankind continues to pursue their own way. I'm going to jump to chapter 11 and read verses 1 through 9. Turn there with me. Right before that, In 1032, it says, these are the clans of the son of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Verse one of chapter 11. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Everyone say, "Uh uh-oh. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold... They are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because... There, the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, I want to highlight just a handful of delusions that the people had that we see in this text. Number one would be the delusion that somehow God can be formed in our image. And what do I mean by that? Well, Here's the truth. When we decide on our own authority and on our own power that we are going to do something completely on our own, guess what we have just done? We have just made ourselves God of our own life. 
And in turn, we really like when God's will, as we would say, somehow seems to line up with our selfish, sinful desires. And I'm going to tell you that that is most likely not God's will. Because at the end of the day, God's will will ultimately bring glory to himself, not you. And if we ever get to a place in our own lives, in our church family, that we are more concerned about bringing glory to our own name than bringing glory to the God who has saved us, we of all people are most to be pitied. Because we hold in our hands the very keys of redemption and yet live a life of self-absorbed idolatry. We see the same thing here as the people say. Let us make bricks. Let us build ourselves a city. Let us make a name for ourselves. One of the most dangerous consistencies in Scripture is when people begin talking amongst themselves before they speak with God. The next delusion we see in this is that somehow God would be impressed with their creation. And one of the things I love about this story is that in verse 5, it says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And I'm just picturing this, okay? God is a God of the universe. He holds everything together. And here we are as mankind going, oh, I'll pat myself on the back. Look at what we've built. It's so big. And God's, I'm just paying, this is purely my thinking about this. God is like straining his eyes. What is that? It's so small. And so God has to come down to see what it is. Right? Somehow, we get this delusional idea that we can do these magnificent things. And look around you. Step outside. You really think the God of creation who formed the mountains... And the ocean is impressed? I don't. I believe God is most impressed when we recognize our weakness and put our faith in Him. The amazing truth about that is it means you can breathe a little bit. God isn't calling you to build this crazy, magnificent, enormous thing. He's calling you to be faithful. To be obedient. The third delusion in this is that man, goes right along with this, through his own efforts can attain a status closer to God. Church family, we are... In no place to determine our own status before God because we are sinful, fleshly beings. And God has made a way, but we fall very short every day of walking and living in righteousness as He's called us to. Therefore, we cannot do it on our own. 
we are incapable of saving ourselves. The truth of the matter is, oftentimes we like to think of God's salvation as if we're drowning out in the ocean and he throws us a life raft. But scripture says you were dead in your sins. You weren't floundering. You weren't even living. And God in Christ offers new life. Breathed life back into you in Jesus. And it's only through Him that we gain access to the Father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The greatest enemy to righteousness is ourselves. The only blockade to us walking in obedience to God's commands is our choice to walk in disobedience. The only hindrance to us depending fully upon God's sovereignty is our ongoing dependence on our own ability to manage and control the world around us. The only reason we fail to live a life of righteousness is because we are satisfied with our sinfulness. But there's hope in the midst of this. God's grace is seen in driving out Adam and Eve from the garden to prevent them from forever remaining in the state of sin they were in. That's in Genesis 3, 22 and 24. God's grace is seen in sparing Noah and his family, maintaining his promise that it would be through Eve's offspring that hope would come upon the earth. God's grace is seen as he confuses man's language and scatters them across the globe to prevent them from becoming utterly dependent on themselves and doomed to destruction. God's grace is abundant. Now, to bring this full swing, I want to illustrate something for you, okay? Um, and actually, I want to, um, while, I'm, while I'm getting ready for this, um, any kids that want to do this, come up here, okay? You guys are going to like this. Don't be shy. Come up here. Someone come over there and stand on that. Okay, just stand on it. Oh, 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 wait till I get stretched. Okay. All right, line up behind the line. Okay. Just step behind the line. All right. I want you to take a piece of paper and pass it down. Everyone get a piece of paper. Now, I have to credit, this, this illustration is, um, is actually courtesy of Pamela Hughes. She sent this to me and just felt, that she actually sent it to me when we were in our Tolerable Sin series. And it wasn't a good place. I just didn't feel like, oh, this isn't the right time. But as I was prepping today, I went, oh, this is it. Um, so I want to give her credit. And God uses our church family in this to help equip each other in these truths. Okay? Um, now, I'm going to wait. Make sure you get... Here, let me take a stack down. Okay? 
And we'll start at this end too. Here, you guys, take one, pass it on. Go ahead and take one. You got one? Just one. You guys need to be prepared here. Because you might have to use your Bible as a shield. Here you go. Okay. Got one? Got one. All right. Who needs one? You got one? Everyone got one? Does everyone have one? Anyone not have one? All right. Here's what I want you guys to do with that paper. I want you to crumple it up into a ball. I know, right? All right, you guys stay behind the line. Everyone's feet have to be behind that line. Okay? Make sure you get a good one. Get a good ball crumpled up, okay? Now, here's, here's the reality, okay? We like to convince ourselves that somehow, some way, we can impress God, that we can somehow make this our own, that we could do this ourselves. And in so doing, we set the standard way too shallow. And so you guys, here's, here's the thing. How many of you, if I said uh, that you need to throw this paper ball and hit the front row, would say you could do that? How many of you say you think you could do that? Okay. How about if I said, how about if I said, throw it and hit the back doors? How many of you think you could do that? I love your enthusiasm. Now, all right, I want to I go another way, okay? How many of you, if I said, I want you to throw this, I'm going to open the doors up, and I want you to throw it and get it out into the parking lot. How many of you think you could do that with that paper ball? You're still so confident. We're basically at the point now where we're just thinking, are you serious? I know, right? So, here's what I'm going to tell you, okay? Here you go. Listen. I want you guys, when I count to three, to throw as far as you can, but your target is the North Pole. All right, here we go. Get ready. You guys watch out, okay? Cover your heads. It's just paper. All right? We're going to see this, okay? I'm going to hide behind this. All right, here we go. You ready? See how far you can get. One, two, three. Go. All right. Now, wait a minute. I see one here. Was there any others this far back? Was there any farther than this? Okay. All right. Who? Yeah, I don't know. I should have had you put your name on it, right? Who did it? Okay. Listen. All right. All of you up there, listen. And everyone out here, listen. Shh. The expectation that we're going to make it into eternity by our own doing is like saying you're going to stand behind that line and you're going to throw to the North Pole. And even though, even though, hey guys, listen, listen, 
even though this one made it all the way here, how far was it from the North Pole? (laughs) All right, you guys can have a seat. Have a seat. Okay? Have a seat. Oh, good job. You're getting them picked up. All right. Listen up. All right. Here's where this meets, where the rubber meets the road. When we convince ourselves that somehow, some way, we can do this on our own, we gravely deceive ourselves. But this, there's another picture in here that we often miss. Because we like to focus solely on our effort and we miss the size of God's grace. Because even though we fall miserably short, God sent his son Jesus to give his life because God foreknew that none of us could throw to the North Pole. None of us could ever achieve a righteousness that would get us into heaven. So he made a way. Now here's the hard thing on the other side of that. You have a choice to make. The greatest enemy to righteousness is ourselves. The greatest barrier between you and what God has called you to is your own flesh. In John 1, it says, to all who believed him, to to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. There's no other way. So when we stop and ponder that and we think about the post-flood depravity it should bring a grave warning in us that goes, oh my. Every day, I either choose to walk in obedience to God's law, to His Word, or disobedience. And there will come a day when I will bow before Him and give an account. On that day, what will you depend on? Will you depend upon your arm and your ability to throw closer to the North Pole than the guy next to you? Or will you depend solely on the sacrifice and gift of Jesus? Only you can make that decision. So what I want to do now in response to that is I just want us to pause. I want us to pause and I want you to reflect on these truths and I want you to evaluate your own life. And just for a few minutes, I'm not going to be super long, but for a few minutes, I want you to consider the areas of your life where you are most prone to walk in disobedience. 
And as you're reflecting on this, here's what I want you to consider. Um, Rather than having long prayers, I want you to just, if you feel led to do so, to speak truths out. Maybe those truths are praise to who God is. Maybe those truths are confession of personal shortcomings. Maybe those are thanksgivings to the Lord for things you've seen Him do. Whatever that may be. Just in this time, reflect and then speak these truths out as we consider who God is, who we are, and what He has done on our behalf. Let's pray. Fathers, we go today. May we live in light of your faithfulness. Lights for you, bringing you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.